All right, this is number three out of four in this series on Nehemiah. And, you know, I originally, in the original schedule, uh, this was supposed to be the last one, that I would actually finish it today. But you have to remember back in January, remember when it was still winter in January? Because it doesn't feel like winter anymore. And we did have a blizzard day that shut us down. So everything got bumped a little bit. So, um, And I already said next week is a youth service week. So we're just going to roll with that. So I will do number three in Nehemiah today. Then we'll take a break for a week. And we're actually going to come back to it uh, to finish it in a couple of weeks. We've been inviting all of you to read through the book of Nehemiah with us, and we've had a reading guide for that, and, and I know that many of you have been doing that, and that helps fill in some of the gaps around the story as you do that, but I'm highlighting then some of the features of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah as we bounce through this in these series that we're doing, four of these messages, so number three today. We've already seen some things, right? We have seen the way that Nehemiah is a person of prayer. And if you've been reading through Nehemiah, hopefully you've picked up on that. How often Nehemiah stops and prays and makes prayer an intentional part of what he's doing. So even though the story of Nehemiah, I mean, he's known for the guy that rebuilt Jerusalem, right? He headed up that project. He's an organizer. He makes it happen. He's an administrator. But when you actually read through Nehemiah, what you discover is this is a guy of prayer. Constantly often in everything that he does. Prayer is there. So we've looked at that. We've also looked at the way that Nehemiah in his life of faith confronts opposition, doubt, when things press against him, how he maintains his direction in his faith and does that. Today we're going to talk about something a little different that comes up in the story of Nehemiah, something that Nehemiah turns his attention to that really does not have to do with this building project of the wall in the city of Jerusalem at all, but he still sees as worthy of his attention. Now, I don't know how you all categorize those things. What's worthy of your attention, right? How do you rate things? And for those who have maybe read leadership or productivity books, maybe you're familiar with the quadrant of things of, well, let's see, you take whatever's coming before you and you put it in, One of four quadrants. It's important and urgent, right, if that sounds familiar. Or it's maybe important, but it's not so urgent. So it's still in that top category. Then you've got a third quadrant of, well, it's it's not important, but it's still urgent, right? So something you feel urgency for, but it really doesn't hold great importance. And then that last bottom level things in your life that maybe they are not urgent at all and they are not important at all. Uh, Nehemiah is a gifted administrator. I don't know that he had a formula like this for working things out. I mean, that's sort of how we do things in our business world today. But Nehemiah worked in that kind of a world of productivity. You catch that in the story, right? That he's working to do something. So I don't know how he organized and how he sort of had his paradigm of figuring out, well, what is really the most important thing and the urgent thing or things that are, they're still important, but, you know, they can maybe hold off. They're not quite as urgent. And and all the way down to where Nehemiah finds things where he says, you know what, this is coming up, but it's not important and it's not urgent. 
get it out of the way. It doesn't need to be a distraction. I don't know if Nehemiah organized things like that in his mind or not, but he was working with some kind of a paradigm that helped him identify what needed attention and what didn't. Right? What, what he could say, this is what I'm going to devote my attention to and other things, they're a distraction, they're in the way. I'm not going to devote time or attention to those things. Especially in terms of his life of faith. How do we deal with that, right? When you think about what it means for you to be a person of faith and to walk that faith journey, that Christian life, and things come up along the way, how do you identify in your life of faith what's really important, what's really urgent, what really should be front and center? And how do you identify in your life of faith things that maybe try to push their way in, but you can say it's really not that important and it's really not that urgent. It's a distraction. Get it out of the way. How do you and I do that? Well, let's take a look at what Nehemiah does here as a way of discovering how he pulls on an issue that comes up along the way and he brings it to the top. It doesn't have to do with the building of the wall or anything like that, but he says, this is important, this is urgent, let's deal with it. And why he decides this issue is important that way. So I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 5 before I do that. Let's pray together. God, this is your word for our life. And as we open this and read this, we pray that we would not just read a story from a long, long time ago, but that we may read through this what your spirit is telling us today for our life of faith. Work that in us and in our hearts, we pray. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 19 verses. It's not all that long, but just to catch the story of this. You have in your bulletin a page reference if you want to look at it. 19 verses didn't quite fit in the print of what you're looking at if you're looking at it in, in your bulletin there. So I'm going to get to a point in the story where if you're following along in the bulletin, I'm going to keep going and you're going to think I was at the end. It will all be on the screen here behind me, though, okay? So, Nehemiah 5, the entire chapter, 19 verses. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh, same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, 
we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers, my men, are also lending the money, lending the people money for grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. And also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their houses and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the early governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, What's Nehemiah doing here? Let's, let's put a little context around this story, reminding ourselves of what's taking place here. Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer of the king of the Persian Empire, um, and he's a Jew in exile, he's the one who requests to go back to the ruined city of Jerusalem and organize a rebuilding project, which he has 
begun to do, and he's starting that and working along with it. And the other Jews who are living in the area are helping him do that. But these are all Jews who are scattered around Jerusalem. They don't actually live in the city because the city is ruined. So they're coming in from the surrounding areas, and it's very close by. You know, right? They don't have cars or buses or transit. They can easily walk. It's that close. Within a couple of miles, they have all of their land where they live around the city, and they depend on this land to provide for them. So it, it's an agrarian society, and these people grow their own food. And remember, they don't have refrigerators and that kind of thing to can or package or keep things fresh. So grain is the main thing that they grow because when you harvest grain, it's shelf-stable. It doesn't go bad. They can hang on to that to feed them through the year. That's what people do during that time. They have the growing season where they grow their grain and their olives and their grapes so that they can make bread and have oil for baking with and wine for drinking. They do all of that during the growing season to provide for them for an entire year. Now we pick up here from verse 3 a mention about famine, but it must be localized in that sense to where however it works, their land was not providing enough to feed them especially those who didn't have much land. And we don't know the reasons why. We don't know the details. Perhaps there was a localized heavy storm with hail that cut down a lot of the crop and it ruined. Maybe there was an infestation of insects in a localized area that ate away some of the crop. We don't know. But what we know is that there are a group of people around Jerusalem who, for whatever reason, their land did not produce enough during this growing season. So especially those who were poor and didn't have much land because they depended on all the land they had to provide for their needs, they didn't have enough. And those who were wealthy and had more land, well, I mean, they, they could still get enough off of that. Or because they were already wealthy, they could afford to buy grain from surrounding areas where perhaps whatever befell their harvest didn't affect other areas. That's what's going on here, okay? So envision that. Families, they need to grow things in their garden to survive. And those who have very small gardens or didn't have a lot didn't get enough this season. It's not there. So what do you do when there's not food and you need to provide? Well, they had a couple of things they could do, right? Especially if they didn't have money. Well, they could mortgage off their land so that they could get money. And some people were doing that, according to the passage. Or they had a system of indentured servitude back then, where they could actually sell themselves into slavery to be provided for. But once you're a slave, you can't really work back your debt. So they would sell off their other family members. I know, sounds harsh. Sell off their other family members in hopes that they could somehow recoup the money and pay the debt and essentially buy them back. That's how the economy worked back then. So that's what's happening. And it comes to Nehemiah's attention, right? They bring it to his attention. Hey, look at what's happening here. Look what's going on. We're trying to help you with this project to rebuild this city, but at the same time, we're starving, we're losing our land, and we're having to sell off our family members into slavery. And at this one, Nehemiah takes attention. He says, all right, this is one that we're going to deal with. 
And particularly, he does not deal with it in the sense of, all right, fine, here's some food, you're fed. But he says, there is a system of injustice that has to be fixed. There is an injustice happening to God's people. And something needs to be done about that, to fix that, to provide. So he does this in ways where he addresses where the oppression is coming from, right? He gathers the nobles and the officials and those who are actually getting richer off of the poor getting poorer. And he says to them, this isn't right. This is not how it's supposed to go. I want you to give back to them everything that you've taken and then stop charging them interest on top of that. And Nehemiah must have been a very persuasive speaker because they agree. Right? Imagine that if you're going to a people who are, you know, they're, they're making money, they're doing the business. And you know, it's how the economy worked. They're just doing what the economy does. And Nehemiah says to them, nope, not like that. Because the way you're doing it now is exploiting the poor. Give it back. Give it back to them. And they say, we'll do that. We will. Not only that, but you read that when we get to the part where they make that oath in front of the priests, they praise God doing it. It wasn't something that it was uh, like begrudgingly, fine, we'll do it your way. All right, whatever, here you go. It wasn't like that. They saw what Nehemiah was saying, right? They, they saw the point. They said, you're right. You're right, this is not just. This needs to be corrected. We need to honor and worship God in how we live and in how we do things around this. Nehemiah brings us to places that, well, it fit with their people at their time. Let's remember that Nehemiah was an Old Testament Jew, and he knew his Jewish heritage, right? They're all descendants of Abraham. So they, they look to Abraham as sort of their founding father of their nation. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And when God made a covenant with Abraham, you can read about this in Genesis 12, there were certain things in particular that God promised for Abraham. God promised Abraham three things in particular. First of all, God said, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. You're going to have descendants that are going to become a nation of people. God promised Abraham that. Secondly, God promised Abraham land. This place, Canaan, this promised land will be your land. So it was a promise of land. And then the third thing that God promises Abraham in Genesis 12 says, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless you so richly that you will be a blessing for all nations. That you are going to be so abundantly blessed, that blessing will spill over and all people will be blessed through the blessing I give to you. Something tells me that's what Nehemiah is pulling at here. That's the thread that catches him. That he recognizes who they were as God's people and the covenant that God had made with his people. And maybe somewhere behind the scenes, we don't read it here, but I'm just guessing that maybe Nehemiah catches on and says, wait a minute, we had a covenant promise with our God that he was going to bless us. And some of us here are really, really blessed. But the covenant of that blessing 
was a covenant of overflow. That we were to use that blessing to bless others. And he looks around him and it's brought to his attention and he sees there's a system. A system that's working the other way. Instead of it being a blessing that blesses others, we're just hoarding all the more. Taking from those who have the least. And that has to be fixed. It's not just giving them something to eat for today, but in order for us to return to the covenant that God has made for us, we have to fix this injustice. And it sounds like maybe Nehemiah is being pretty harsh with these noble and officials, but um, there's a bit of a heart check of his own here, isn't there? As the story goes on towards the end of that chapter. Because remember, Nehemiah is one of these officials. In fact, he's the governor. He is the highest among the officials. And he probably had the most to gain by exploiting the poor. That the way the laws worked in that time during the empire, that they were supposed to pay him taxes. And he was supposed to be able to live off that. And he could live extravagantly off of that. Nehemiah himself, was a beneficiary of this unjust system. And here he recognizes that. It's brought to his attention and he sees it. And he says, I'm not just going to point the finger at all of you, but I'm going to point the finger at me too. I need to change. I need to correct something. I need to do something different about this. So Nehemiah himself sets the example. Right? He doesn't just tell the people, here's what I want you to do, but he shows it by his example, by the way that he does it. He says, I'm going to give back. And I am not going to demand any more from these people, even though by the law of the land, the governor is entitled to it. I'm not going to do it. And so for the rest of the time that he lives in that area as the governor, he does not take in one cent from the people around him even though it was custom during that time that the people had to pretty much fill his pantry for him, right? Give him all the food for him to eat and eat well. He says, I'm not going to demand that they do that. In fact, look at what Nehemiah does towards the end of chapter 5. He flips it around to the exact opposite. I'm going to take from what I already have, and I'm going to provide it for you. So it says at the end of chapter 5, every day he puts on this huge dinner party. Look at all the food that he prepares every single day. And then opens his doors. Says, I've got a table with abundant food here. Come on in. Come on in. More than 100 people every day get to come in and eat around his table with him. That's how Nehemiah responds. To say, this unjust system has to be fixed. It was a part of his life of faith. We've talked about that, right, in some of these previous messages. That that Nehemiah has a life of faith that transforms into action. He has action to his faith. And the whole thing about him responding to God to go and to rebuild the wall was part of his action of faith. This is as well, that Nehemiah, from a place of his own faith 
embracing the covenant promise of the Old Testament that he and his people had with God, he embraces that in a way that says there needs to be some action here. I've got to do something to respond in the faith that I am walking in to God. And it has to be made right, this injustice along that. So how does he do that? What does that look like in ways that maybe give us some categories? Right? Think about our own lives of faith. Uh, What it means for us to follow God in belief and in obedience as we live that today. What are some categories that maybe we can pull out of Nehemiah's example here that show us a little something about that? Well, first of all, I noticed this in Nehemiah. That Nehemiah is a person who makes room in his life to listen and respond to the Holy Spirit. We have caught that the whole way through the story, if you've been reading along with us. How often he stops and prays. And sometimes it's a prayer that's seeking help from God. Sometimes it's a prayer of confession. God, I messed up and I'm sorry. Sometimes it's a prayer for other people on their behalf. Sometimes it's a prayer for wisdom. God to show him direction of what to do. But all of these points, he's stopping and he's making room in his life for this. He's intentionally prioritizing it. He's saying, you know what? In those, whatever those quadrants may have been in his life, this one is in the quadrant of it's important and it's urgent. So I'm going to put some things out of the way that are in the way for that. Okay? So, Nehemiah comes to that point of recognizing importance and urgency for listening to God, listening to the Holy Spirit, for finding that place in his life where that fits, where there's time for that. Second thing he does here, right? Nehemiah makes room in his life for other people. Needs of the people come before him. And he doesn't just say, you know what, all right, fine, give them something, provide for them. He says, you know what, I'm going to make room for these people. They're hungry, they need food. I've got so much food, I'm going to throw a dinner party every single day. Every day. And I'm going to fill my table with food every day. And then I'm going to make room around my table for other people to come and sit with me. He makes room in his life. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever thrown a dinner party, right, or or had people over, or... um, (laughs) Okay, so the few times when we do that at our house, it's like, I guess this is the excuse we have now to actually clean the whole house and clean it right, right? People are coming over, so let's do this. You put some extra time, you got to make room around that. You've got to make some room about what it means for other people to be a part of my life and my home. To bring Nehemiah is doing that every day. Every single day, he's making room for other people. Hundreds of other people. That requires some intentional work. And then the third thing that he does, right? Nehemiah is making room in his life to nurture the well-being of his community. He sees an injustice that is happening, and he says, this needs to be made right. That 
the community around us is not living well. They're being oppressed. And they're being exploited. And we need to find a way to turn that around so that our community thrives. You know, the, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, the word they use for that, shalom. We need shalom. That thriving and flourishing as God intended for his creation to be. I use the word well-being here because that makes a little more sense in our world than shalom. But that's what he's after. We need to do something so that this system of injustice does not keep perpetuating itself, but we need to fix that and nurture the well-being of our community. Nehemiah is working in that way, putting those things into place. Right? If, if last week you came to our Renewal Lab thing after the service, and the very last thing that we did before you went is we, we handed out what we've been working on as a vision for what it means to be God's people. If you got that last week and if you spent any time reading that over the week, maybe you recognize some of this of what I'm putting up here that we see in Nehemiah's example. This idea of what it means to make room for listening and responding to the Holy Spirit. What it means to make room for other people. What it means to make room for nurturing the well-being of our community and what that looks like. My father-in-law, um, going back years and years when uh, my wife and siblings were all younger and still in school and a very athletic family, they all played sports. So they all were playing different sports in school, uh, four of them. Uh, Laura has three siblings, so four of them in that family. My father-in-law would get up at 4 a.m. something every day and be at his desk in the office by 5 a.m. Every day he would do that. And he would do that so that by 3.30 in the afternoon, he was done. His time in the office was done. And he would do that so that by 3.30, he could get out of the office and then go wherever the kids were, right? Softball, basketball, volleyball, um, soccer, all the sports that all the kids played. Because it was important. Important for him as a father to say, I want to be there and support my kid. I want to be there for my kid in that. So he made room in his life for that to happen. Right? It wasn't random. He had to make room in his life for that priority of being a father with kids who are involved in those activities. And making room to do that meant having to do some intentional choices. It means I'm getting up at 4 a.m. every day to get to work so that I can get those things done. It's priority to make room. Nehemiah is doing this, right? Nehemiah is the kind of guy who says, I'm going to make choices for this to happen. Let's remember who Nehemiah is, all the way back to the beginning. Remember who Nehemiah is. He is the cupbearer of the king. He's a high official who lives in the palace. He's got all the benefits coming to him. He is living in the lap of luxury. He did not need to do any of this. There was no obligation for Nehemiah to go and travel to the area of Judah where everything is ruined and destroyed. 
There's no obligation for Nehemiah to take on and organize this building project. And when the needs of the poor come before him, really, at that point, there is no obligation for Nehemiah to respond the way that he did, to give of his own wealth for them. Nehemiah shows what it looks like to intentionally make room to be a person whose life of faith comes into action by making room. Making room for listening and responding to the Spirit. Making room for other people. Making room for the well-being of his community. Nehemiah does this in ways that demonstrate or echo the heart of God. You know, it's in the New Testament that uh, we read, the apostles tell us in the New Testament that we, the people of God, are being conformed into the image of Christ. Right? That we are being renewed into the image of Christ. And as we are being renewed into the image of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit starts bearing and pouring out of our lives. We echo Christ himself and his love as we are being renewed. In the Old Testament, you find these examples that are sort of foreshadows of Christ, right? They, they show the example of the coming Messiah. Or, you know what, I think it's fair to flip that around. Nehemiah is being conformed into the image of Christ before Christ ever comes because the Holy Spirit's doing that in him. He didn't even know who Christ was at that point, but God is renewing his people, and by renewing his people, he's conforming them into the image of Christ. So you see these examples in the Old Testament that sort of serve as foreshadows of the Christ who will come. But really, they're just echoing, echoing God's love, echoing God's heart in who they are and in how they live. Because it's the heart of God that comes through this. Right? Nehemiah was not obliged. He was not obligated. He didn't have to do this. But he chooses to because he loves God, because he loves God's people. Chooses to do that, even though no one forces him to do it. That echoes the heart of God. Jesus looks at our world, a world that's broken and ruined, right? A world that's been completely destroyed by our own sin, that it stands against us. And Jesus, who has no obligation, no one forced him, right? didn't have to owe anything, Jesus chooses. He chooses to say, because I love these people, because I love this world that's so broken, I'm going to make room and step in. Make room for them that I'm going to go and I'm going to fix what's wrong. That the injustice of the sin that is held against them, against me, against you, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to turn that around. I'm going to take that away. I'm going to bring justice so that these people can be counted as righteous before God. And that's what he does. That Jesus comes, gives himself on the cross for us so that our sin is taken away and we receive his perfect righteousness. 
Nehemiah echoes that. Echoes that because his heart is being renewed into the image of Christ. So he bears that same fruit. That's what his life of faith shows. Comes to us then, that question, right? How does my response of faith echo the love of God? In figuring out in my own life some of these issues that come before me and what it means for being a Christian and how it is I'm supposed to walk and journey on that and the questions that come along and which category do I put this in? Is this urgent? Is this important? Or, you know what, is this a distraction? Is it getting in the way? Perhaps a question that funnels that down for us would be the question of, okay, as I walk in faith, how does my faith echo the love of God? Being conformed into the image of Christ so that the Holy Spirit bears that fruit through who I am. We see it in Nehemiah. And that same Holy Spirit that does that through Nehemiah is given for all of us too. That we all have that same gift from God to follow him in faith in ways that echo his love for us into the world that he loves so much. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the example of Nehemiah who shows us what it means to echo your love and to do that in ways that build him up in faith through what you are doing through him. God, we pray that as we consider what that looks like in our lives, Lord, first of all, we're sorry when we take things that are in that category of not urgent, not important, and let ourselves get distracted by that. So God, show us again through, the, through how you reveal yourself in your word. Show us your heart, what is so important to you, and Lord, embed that in our hearts as something which is also most important to us in how we follow you. God, we see your heart of compassion through the example of Nehemiah. Give us that same heart of compassion, we pray. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.